My mind is a raging torrent flooded with rivulets of thought cascading into a waterfall of creative alternatives. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are ably assisted of a Friday, as always, by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you doing today? Oh, so good here. Just one big post-Valentine's Day hug to you. Oh, uh, reaching across the miles. Nice. I felt that. Thanks, Susie. <laughs> and congratul- congratulations to the Seattle Kraken beating the Boston Bruins. Did they? Wow. <laughs> oh, Benny, I, Benny, I didn't Benny. catch the score, but if they did, we, great. We've got to get you on board with hockey. <laughs> oh, I am. I got a little few more things to do around in the morning around here. So, you know. Yes, you do. All right. Today, we are going to have the pleasure of meeting on air meeting number two with a gentleman he will get you thinking about your thinking and maybe that's unique to our species we think and then we think about our thinking and then we realize it's just a thought and we have to decide what we're going to do in response rather than reaction to all of the above we're talking about thomas m sterner Suzanne, would you like to do the honors? I would. Thomas M. Sterner is the author of The Practicing Mind, Fully Engaged, and It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. The CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute, Thomas Sterner is an in-demand speaker and coach working with high-performance industry groups and individuals, including athletes, to help them operate effectively in high-stress situations and experience new levels of mastery. Prior to writing the best-selling The Practicing Mind, Sterner studied Eastern and Western philosophy and modern sports psychology and trained as a jazz pianist. He lives in Wilmington, Delaware, and online he's at TomSterner.com. We are having him back for the second time, or what we're calling part two, even though part one was in 2023. So welcome back to Manson Mitchell, Tom Sterner. Glad you're with us today. Thank you. It's great to be back on the show, both of you. And your book title is, we're going to give the full title, It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom, through deliberate thinking. I love that term, emotional freedom. I just, I look at myself, I look at the world, and I think emotional freedom is a very precious commodity indeed. Do you not agree? I agree, and for several reasons, obviously, one of which is, uh, as we have said before, are we thinking or are we being thought? And most people spend their day being thought by uh, predetermined behavior that they themselves have installed unknowingly and certainly unintentionally. Um, But something that is also interesting about emotions in general is, you know, we now know that emotion is energy, energy, emotion. Um, That's what emotion is. And Energy, as Einstein said, energy and matter are interchangeable, which means that they both have a gravitational pull to them. 
So if you're – the emotions that you're feeling are negative, fear, anxiety-based, um, you're actually creating a reality. I mean it sounds it's, – it's not abracadabra. I mean this is all science-backed physics, um, but what – it's energy. There is actual measurable energy in an emotional feeling, and that emotion – will go out of you. And as it goes out of you, it will begin to call to you with an energetic field like emotion. And so what, how does that, how does that show up in your life? What well, shows up in similar circumstances as to what is making you um, anxious or afraid or happy? Um, you know, it could be happy. It could be joyful. It, could, it works both ways. And that's, I think the key word in the subtitle is deliberate because that's what we want. There's no freedom in your thinking uh, and in your life, unless you are the creator of the thought. And modern neuroscience and uh, basically says that the average person, that's only happening about 5% of the time. The rest of the time, we're, we're really just living programs that uh, we have installed in the subconscious. So we're, we're in, in a sense, a prisoner of our thinking and a prisoner of ourself. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Valentine's Day aside which as we were getting our Starbucks drink, it was referred to as Singles Awareness Day. <laughs> I think the most important holiday in February is Groundhog Day. Have you seen the movie <laughs> Groundhog Day? A long time ago, yes. yes okay. I did. I try to watch it regularly when I can. To me, this is the epitome of deliberate thinking because Bill Murray is reacting, reacting, reacting through about 99% of that movie. And at the very end of the movie, he is thinking very deliberately in such a way that he achieves complete and total emotional freedom, and he gets the girl. And isn't that the way we all want it to end? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows you what's possible. It is possible when you are thinking deliberately instead of reacting all the time, and he's like a reaction machine through most of the movie. I mean, he's upset, he's angry, you know, the world isn't doing what he wants it to do. And then he finally gets on this tack of, you know, learning to play piano and saving a kid falling out of a tree. And he's doing all these things uh, with some choice but it seems like it takes him however many years it takes him to relive that one day to get to the place where he is actually thinking deliberately and he has the most magnificent day of his life. And Well, and if you look at what Gary said initially, you know, we, we think and yeah. then we think about what we were thinking. Um, you know, it's, you know, the same thing as we're the, well, we're, we think we think we're the only species that is aware that we're aware. And um, so, you know, how do we get involved in this in terms of changing where we're at and what we're experiencing? And the answer is the very first thing you have to do is become aware that you're not your thoughts. And that's the difference. You know, when you are um, most people live their life in their thoughts. They don't actually watch their thoughts. They live their thoughts. There, there's something happens outside of them, a situation that is a trigger um, in any way. It could be something that makes them happy, something that makes them angry, something that makes them scared. Um, and then whatever they told their self that, that is the reaction they should have repetitively, um, that's what the subconscious does. You know, it's always... 
we talked about this the last time I was on the show. The subconscious is a very elegant recording system. It doesn't think, it's not creative, it doesn't have a sense of humor, but it is on all the time. And it watches your reaction. And when I say your reaction, it watches how you feel when a situation unfolds in front of you. And it's always trying to protect you and keep you um, safe and happy. So what it does is it assumes that the way you are reacting is the way that you want to react. And so, especially if you repeat it, then it um, it begins to store it and create a habit out of that. And it makes a lot of sense from an ener- uh, uh, mental, cognitive, energetic standpoint, because habits require very little energy to execute um, and express, unlike creative thinking, which requires all of your thought, you know, but a habit is just you pull, you know, you push the button, run the program, and it's, there's no conscious choice making in a habit. So, but that's the way that it works. So if you repeat a certain behavior over and over again, um, and when I say behavior, I'm talking about a certain feeling. If you have a certain feeling to a certain situation or something like that, then your subconscious assumes that you're telling it, this is how I want to react when this situation happens. And and so whenever that situation comes up, it goes and gets that file and runs it. And off we go to the rodeo. And um, so it's <clears throat> the very first step is always learning to be not only that I am not my thoughts, but to, to learn to live in the place where you're the observer, you're watching what your thoughts are doing, and you're watching what your subconscious is bringing up in a situation instead of being in the emotional content of the situation. Because that's when you have the opportunity um, to say, I know I put that in there, but uh, it's time to delete it, you know, and I want a different reaction to this. And then you craft something different so that your life is much more deliberate and, um, and happy. You know, you you just said something really great. Uh, I think the hardest thing to do is to change a thought, especially if you are your thoughts and you always know, well, this is who I am. This is how I react. This is, you know, this is my life. To be able to choose something different from your programming is one of those aha moments when you're suddenly not reacting the way you always react in this situation it 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 gives you a, a window into something that's different and it can it can delight you yeah i mean if you if you're a road rage person you know 99.99% of the time and then one time you you allow somebody to get in ahead of you and give them a little wave. I mean, you feel pretty good about yourself. Just to stop doing the things that you've always done, I think makes you feel a little bit empowered, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, you, there is no freedom if you're if your thoughts or situations control you, you, there is no freedom in that. You're only free in your life to be who you want and to experience things as you want if you are the thinker and you make the decisions. Now, we're not raised to think this way. You know, when I was growing up, I was told, well, it's uh, your emotions. You can't control your emotions. That's just the way it is, you know, which is really the farthest thing from the truth. But of course, in my parents' generation, they didn't know that um, we didn't have that so much we didn't have neuroscience that didn't even exist. And psychology was pretty much in its infancy um, if you compare it to modern day psychology. So, but now we know, we know how the brain interacts with itself and we know how habits are formed. And we know the difference between the observer and the habitual behavior that um, is very seductive. Uh, because like, as you said, you know, when it happens, you just drop right in it because 
that's what you've always done. So it feels normal. And it also feels like you're actually in control. You, it feels like I, this thought, I'm making this thought, but you're not actually making the thought. The thought has already been made. It was recorded before and it's just being played out and you're just dropping into the instruction set um, and expressing it. So yes, I think that this is one of the most important things and it does bring, it does bring happiness to you. It's, um, you know, when, because as you said, the word empowerment is really great there because you realize that I do not have to be a slave to my thinking and I don't have to be a slave to decisions that I made in the past to think a certain way. Even um, even though I didn't know I was thinking, telling myself to do this, you know, um, but now I do. And so now I can make this choice. And, you know, a really quick, funny story is um, – one of the uh, corporate um, venues that I work with, one of the guys on that uh, in that corporate uh, venue that I work with on a regular basis, when I first met him, he told me, he reminded me of it with the road rage. He said, you know, I got a terrible road rage thing. I, you know, I'm so impatient and everything. So we started talking about that, about being outside of his thoughts and outside of his reactions and everything that we've just talked about. So he ended up going on a vacation with his wife and they it was a just a straight flight to um Jamaica and then it was supposed to be a straight flight back to their home airport well it turned out that they ended up having to go to Atlanta Georgia and there was all this sort of stuff that went on and it was absolutely terrible they were uh, on the plane for 6 hours people were getting sick um and he said there were they had a, a chat room a slack chat room and in the chat room he said um, and this was passed on to me by other people at the company. He said, there are people alive because of Sterner, <laughs> you know, and it was just because he had realized um, <laughs> he, he and he, when he got back, he told me, he said, you know what, Tom, it was, the, it was the coolest thing. He said, there was a time in my life where I would have been punching to get into the um, the cabin and everything. And he goes, but I was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're here. This is where we are. This is, you know, we just got to take our time. And he said, I would have never thought I could be that person. He said, but now I understand that I can. And it's a heck of a lot better place to spend your day than where I spent it before. So it's it's definitely a worthwhile effort. There is so much made these days about concepts that seem to be at either at war with each other or one is meant to be, if not the cure, a uh, an antidote there or a treatment for the other. And that is the concept of mindfulness versus overthinking. I hear this term overthinking or overanalyzing. And I wonder what percentage of people on any continent at any given moment of any given day are characterized by their overthinking, their paralysis by analysis. And here comes the mindfulness movement. I saw a magazine at the grocery store yesterday, mindfulness, and there was a lady in a yogic pose. I don't know if it involves having to do yoga. That might be one great way of focusing on the present moment and attaining some degree of mindfulness. But it seems like there's a whole industry building up now, and particularly in the literary sphere, about attaining mindfulness as an antidote to overthinking and driving yourself crazy over your own thoughts. Yes, uh, you know, mindfulness is a skill, um, in my opinion, uh, and I've practiced this stuff for 50 years. Um, again, in our culture in the West, we're not taught to, to live in a mindfulness state, but 
but there are cultures that do teach mindfulness from the time the children are little. They're taught mindfulness and they reinforce that. Um, I remember that in the Japanese culture, uh, I, I'm not sure if they're still doing this, but after lunch, they would have this Zazen period where all of these executives would go into a room and they, when they meditate, they kneel on a mat um, and they would kneel all around this room. There's the exec executive, they kneel on a mat and they quiet their mind and they, they basically slow the, the hamster wheel down and they get their mind back to a state of stillness. And um, it's like if you'll go back 15 years ago and suggested that to an American company, they'd laugh you out of the room. So this is, you know, but this concept of mindfulness is an antidote because once people understand that there is a freedom and an escape from the world when you just live in this moment right now. And I've worked with people on a regular basis in companies where they are overwhelmed by um they have, they feel like they have too much to do. Sometimes I'm sure they do, uh, but their mind, the way your mind works and the way the ego works is that it looks at, you know, when you're doing something, uh, it says, okay, you're doing that now, but we got all this stuff, this other stuff we have to do. So I'm going to take off and get to working on that. Well, one of the things that I say is work on what you're working on because you're not actually working on the thing that you have to do later in the day. You're thinking about working on it, but you're not working on it. So that is wasted energy. So if you can learn to just let go of those proddings and um, basically if you have to compartmentalize your day and say like from nine to 10, I'm doing this and you make your decisions ahead of time. This is when I'm doing this and I'm not going to be doing that. Like for example, yesterday I was working with um, a, an executive who was also pregnant and she was saying that, you know, it's the first first child she's had and there's, you know, she's getting texts from her mother. What do you think of this outfit? Like, you know, I could buy it and all this sort of stuff that's just distracting her from her job. And, and so like, um, and I talked to her about this and I said, you know, for one, you can turn the phone off. I said, you can have a conversation with her and say, look, from this time to this time, I can't answer my phone because I'm, I'm doing this. It's not that I don't want to answer the phone. I said, you know, you can, you can figure out a way to say it in a kind, in a, you know, in a kind way. I said, but what you're doing is asking your mind to switch task all the time because um, multitasking doesn't exist. We know that. What happens is, is you're working on something and then you get a text that shows a picture of an outfit that you need to make a decision on. Well, your mind has to, your brain has to come to a screeching stop and then shift over to that mode, make the decision and then come to a screeching stop and then come back to this and start over. And that's the reason why you're so tired at the end of the day, because your mind is just like, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. When you allow yourself and you give yourself permission to be, I'm doing this right now, this is what is in front of me, then you let go of these this feeling of obligations to solve all these other problems because it's not time to solve those problems. When it's time to solve those problems, then you don't think about what you're doing right now. You think about that. That's how you stay present moment because people will say, well, I have to make plans like um, and that's I'm planning something in the future. And I said, well, you can still be in the present moment of that. I said, like, if you're going to plan something that you have to do in the future, then you say from 10 to 1030, I'm going to be in the present moment functioning of planning that particular time and what I'm going to say, you know, but when you're doing this particular, you know, you're doing task A. And but your mind is um is split now. Your cognitive resources is split into five other things because it 
your ego feels like it's getting all this stuff done. It's not getting all this stuff done. And you, it doesn't have all of your decision-making there because it, it can't because you're doing so many different things at one time. And I find that once people experience, I, I've told them, I find it like um, it's an escape. I said, like when you allow yourself and you give yourself that permission to just be focused on this one thing, with the idea, you'll first of all, you'll find out from sports psychology and all performance data that when you're in the present moment, you're totally mindful and you're functioning in, on just what you're doing now, you are operating at your peak performance. You will never operate at a better performance level than when you are there. Your performance plummets when you start dividing your attention into a lot of things. And the other problem with that is because you're not completely focused on those other things, you're living in a state of indecision. And indecision is very, it's very exhausting. You know, once you make a decision to do something, it gets way easier because now you've got the decisions behind you. You just have, have to do the actual mechanics of whatever it is. But when you're sitting there doing a particular task and your mind is running on all these other things and trying to make decisions. Do I, you know, do I want that outfit? Do I not want that outfit? How am I going to tell my mother this? You know, all this sort of stuff has nothing to do with what, like I say, like a basketball player, you know? If he, if he shoots the ball and it misses the hoop, if he sits there and starts berating himself and thinking about the, all the times he made it in practice, is that going to make the ball go through the hoop? No, it's going to decrease his ability to put the ball in the hoop because all of his cognitive resources are not into looking at what's in front of him and making decisions based on that. So I think for a health reason, a mental health reason, uh, it's very important for our culture to begin to look at mindfulness, being in the present and giving yourself permission to do just what you're doing. And with the understanding of, I can't perform at a higher level than when I'm doing this. This is the best. And you'll, and you'll see that you drop into flow. You start to, your um, you don't have wasted actions. That was what I learned in the piano technology business when I had too much work to do. I found that by um, making myself work as slow as I could, this it was a, it was a paradox to make myself work as slow as I could on a particular piano job, like where I was tuning the piano. A lot of repetitive motion had to be done. I had two concert grants to tune, and I was running late, and that was nothing new because I was overworked and overscheduled because there was such a demand for me. And so, and I was totally exhausted. I hadn't had a day off in in several months, and I was eating my lunch while I was driving my van. It was terrible, and um, and I just needed to get out of that. I was like, I'm. A, I needed a break from it. So I made this decision that what I would do is when I came into the concert hall, I was just going to let go of all the obligations of the day. And I was just going to focus on the tuning process. And when I did that, it was really kind of for survival. I was just too tired to, to keep continuing to process all this other stuff. So what I found was when I worked slowly and I demanded myself to work slowly, there was a panic response. My ego is saying, you are getting yourself so screwed for the rest of the day because this is going to take you so much longer because it was used to processing all the other things I had to do for the rest of the day and, and trying to, when you get to this place, you got to do that. When you get to that place, you have to do this. And I was not allowing it to do that. And I was demanding of myself to just be in the present moment. Well, the, the punchline is that when I finished that job, which was a job that I had done hundreds of times because I had worked for that, that theater for 25 years, um, I had actually gained 30 minutes 
over what it normally took me to do that. And the reason was there was no wasted motion. That, you know, we think that um, by doing a lot of things at one time and thinking about a lot of things at one time, that we're actually picking up the pace, but we're actually slowing ourselves down. So it was such a relief. I, my, my whole body, my body language had dropped, the tension in my body had dropped, my mind had slowed down, my breathing had slowed down. All these things were a natural result of me just being in the present moment. And the way that I got there was to intentionally work at the slowest pace I could. Because if you think about that, like in the morning, brush your teeth as slow as you can. Um, if you usually brush your teeth with your right hand, brush them with your left hand. I said, because when you do that, you can't, your body doesn't know how to do it. Your brain doesn't know how to do it. So you, it takes all of your attention. And so you'll find that um, it's a, diff- a completely different experience. And that creates an interaction between your conscious and your subconscious mind. If I understand any of this correctly, the conscious mind makes the decisions. The subconscious mind carries them out with a creative capacity and a storehouse of wisdom, of knowledge that we can only attempt to imagine. And it does so in service to the host being the host brain, the host body. I mean, I don't know how to breathe, but I breathe. Right, right. And with that being the case, it seems like one of the best challenges we can set for ourselves is getting on good terms with our subconscious mind so that our conscious mind is the general uh, or the one, the leader, shall we say, and the subconscious is the brilliant and faithful servant of our consciousness, and dare I say, our spirit, our essential self. That's it's well put, Gary. That's um, I use my mind. I don't allow my mind to use me. I mean, that would be a concise way of saying that. You know, there was a Sufi poet that I, I believe it was, I use my emotions. I don't allow my emotions to use me. It's, you know, I am, I am the commander. You know, and all of this is here for me to use, not for me to be used by it. And really, it's just a matter of understanding the system, you know, how the system works. Um, you know, you could get in the car and keep your hands in your lap and push on the gas without the knowledge that you can actually get grab the steering wheel and determine where you're going. But if you didn't know that, you're just a, um, you're going along for the ride. You know, like um, so I think it's important that once you understand that you do have this power within you. And it isn't, it's not something that was, you know, has been taught to us in the West, but it is something that we now understand. It's a fact. It's scientifically backed. We understand this, this relationship between the observer of the thought, the, um, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. They're like a, you know, a, a trilogy, if you will. And, um, and when used correctly, then the, the, I said in the practicing mind, the chariot driver on the chariot, you know, the horses are not supposed to be the ones that determine where the chariot goes. If the, you know, if the chariot driver lets go of the reins, you know, then the horse, you got four horses and they all have a different idea of where, you know, where they want to go. And they're just pulling and you're just banging around, holding onto the rails of the chariot, trying to stay, keep from falling out. It's not the way it's supposed to work. You know, the chariot driver holds the reins and directs the horses so they stay on the path and they go right to where the chariot driver wants. And everybody's happier, <laughs> like, a, you know, and you're not beat up by the time you get there. And anyway, if you're in the Roman Colosseum, it's all left turns anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, 
We are talking very happily with Thomas M. Sterner. He is the author of It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom. Think about that, about your own emotional freedom. It's just a thought, emotional freedom through deliberate thinking. That is the subject of the hour with our honored guest. Give us a couple of minutes and we're gonna talk about it some more with Tom Sterner. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are Manson Mitchell, and we will be right back. So when he thought, he thought in the most thoughtful way he could think. I haven't thought of anything of you. No, neither have I. Think, think, think. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Tom Sterner, author of It's Just a Thought, who articulates methods for thinking so that we are directing our thoughts rather than being directed by them. On Saturday, Kelly Sullivan Walden, the dream doctor, returns with her latest tools for recognizing and living your best life intentionally and joyfully. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Thomas M. Sterner. He is the author of It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking and other books and other things. If people would like to find out about your books or get in touch with you, what are some of the ways that they can do that, Tom? Well, the easiest way to get in touch with me is to email me at tom at tomsterner.com. I answer all my emails. I read all my emails. I don't have somebody doing that for me. Um, the website is tomsterner.com. Um, and in terms of the books are, they're pretty much all over the place. Amazon's probably one of the easiest places to get them. Excellent. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about in the second half of the show was about this skill development. It, it 
from our conversation, it seems to me the first thing you need to do is, as you said, have that trilogy of the observer, the subconscious mind, and the conscious mind. So you're, you have a little bit of awareness. Gosh, I've gotten into some bad habits. Now, how can I get out of those, especially as it relates to the things that I'm thinking about? So I wanted you to say a little bit about, um, you know, what kinds of things can people do when they're breaking a habit that they really want to break? And especially when it has to do with the way that they think about certain things. Well, the first thing that I tell people, which would seem rather obvious, but it isn't because when I ask them this question, they don't have an answer. And that is, if you could be any person you wanted when that shows up, what what does that look like? And they just look at me. And then, and then it's generally, I don't know. I never thought of that. I said, well, <clears throat> that's where we're going to start. Because if you don't know how you want to react to a certain situation that you now have a habit of reacting to in a way that you don't want to act – then you're in trouble because you're not going to figure that out when you're engulfed in the emotional content of the habit. So the first thing we need to do is say, um, okay, well, if I could touch you on the head with a magic wand and now when that thing happens, you're going to be this. And what does that look like? You know, what does the person look like? You know, how do you experience that moment? And because that gives you something to shoot for, uh, you know, it's like, um, you know, and I've talked about this many times. I, you know, I'm a pilot, a personal pilot. I don't fly for commercially, but, um, you know, in airplanes, everything is a procedure. You know exactly what you're going to do if a certain thing happens and you practice those procedures. So you're not making decisions in the moment of panic, you know, so, you know, like if you have a fuel problem, this, you're going to do A, B, C, and D. Like, um, I mean, Really, you know, there's two options. You know, if your engine quits, you have two options. One is to um, activate a procedure or scream all the way to the crash site. Like, so the thing that you want to do is know what you're going to do in that situation. That's the first thing. Because if you have that, then you've got something to grab a hold of when that situation comes up, when the habit comes up. And that habit is going to push back. You know, and you and you understand that. That's normal. It's normal when it shows up that you have have to understand that you've installed that and it's come through a lot of repetitions. And right now that that um, strength is working against you. But when you have a habit that is what you want, it's working for you. It doesn't know. It doesn't know which one it is. It's just it's just executing. So once you replace that with a habit that is the way you want to react, then that strength of that habit will be there as your ally. Right now, it's working against you, so you don't judge it. You just go, yeah, this is this is the nature of a habit. Um, and so you don't look at it as like, I'm bad at this or anything. That There's no place for that in there. It doesn't, as I said, like with a basketball player, it doesn't help you put the ball through the hoop. So judging your performance in the situation, people will say like, well, how long is it going to take me to break this habit? Well, there's a lot of things that it depends on. It depends on how strong the habit is. It depends on where your mind is, you know, how much you judge it, how attached you are to the moment. You know, when you become attached to the moment, when you've overcome this habit, then you put yourself in general, emotionally, you put yourself at war with the process of breaking the habit. And, um, you know, because you're going to spend a lot of time in the process of breaking the habit, then it makes a lot of sense to fall in love with being there. Like, um, because, you know, and to rejoice with the fact that I do have a choice at this. Like, 
I am not, <clears throat> I am not um, made to repeat, to repeat this habit for the rest of my life. I have a choice and I have a say in this. And so I'm taking it. And isn't that wonderful? And then you just let go of any moment when that you're going to be over that. That's, you know, that's always a problem, I think, with, with all of us because we're so, we're too product oriented, too goal oriented. Yes, we need goals because we need to know where to st- um, steer our energy. But at the same time, we become, when we start to feel like, I can't be happy until the moment I cross the finish line. Then that makes the race a terrible place. You know, you want to learn to enjoy the process um, of getting to that point. And that's the irony is, is we spend about 98% of our life in a process of achieving our goals. So we should just accept the fact that that's where we live. So let's learn how to enjoy it and fall in love with the process of achieving the goals. So, yes, breaking a habit takes some effort. Um but in that moment, you have to, um, first of all, if you look at it from a mechanical standpoint, you have to first know that I can, and then what is, what is it that I would like to replace it with? And then I usually tell people, you need what I'll call a rescue mantra, which is um, when the habit shows up, let's just pick something. Let's say it's a, a particular person at work. They come in the door. As soon as they come in the door, they're annoying. And here they come. Okay, so when that person walks in the door, that's the trigger. And that's what's going to um, activate that habit. So what are you going to do? Well, you need what I call a rescue mantra, which is something that you reverse trigger that. Um, so that gives you a chance to um, not be sucked into the ha- habitual response. So for me, it's something like the person walks in a room and I go, this is when the fun starts. I, I say something like that, that allows me to make light of the moment and realize that, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to divert my attention away from that person and what they might say to me. And I'm going to divert my attention into acting out what I decided was going to be my new reaction to this. And that puts you way ahead of the reaction that the habit is trying to create. It's also the point at which the habit is the strongest and that behavior and the urge and the pushback is always the strongest in those first few seconds. And if you if you can jump out ahead of it and redirect it, you really have a chance of overcoming it. And I've I've just seen this over and over again with people because I'll t- we'll talk about this. And the next time I see them, they'll be like, "You're not going to believe this, but I c- I can't believe that I had so I was able to stay in a different reaction for so long, and I went through the circumstance, and it wasn't in control of me." So it's really, like I said, it's a mechanical thing and anybody can do it, but you have to have a plan. I find one of the toughest challenges to be, and this is throughout my life, I have formed what I would regard as the unhealthy habit of starting a train of thought about something that has either nothing or almost nothing to do with my present circumstances. And I will worry about that thought like a dog worrying a bone. And I, I have to really work at leaving the matter unresolved, even though it may be something about which I've obsessed for years. And it comes back to me again. And I worry about it and I think and I obsess. And then sometimes I found myself lately just saying, I give up. I can't resolve it, so I'm going to leave it unresolved. I don't know the answer to this problem. I don't know how to answer this or that question, so I'm just going to give up. And then I think of a bumper sticker I saw in California back in the 1980s. It said, after I gave up, I felt much better. (laughs) 
That's a great that's a that's a great response. I I think there one of the things that I do in those situations is I'll tell myself I'll think about that later. Like um in other words, I just pass it off like you know, I've made a decision to make a decision later. Um so that uh and that way I've addressed it and so the thought feels if it has a life, it it feels like it hasn't been ignored like um you know, because I've made this decision that um that I am going to address it, but I'll address it later. And then it loses a lot of its power. And I, you know, I, I want to jump to something, um, Suzanne, you said during the break about the, um, in order to be free in the process, um, you have to be a slave, or in order to be free in the art, you have to be a slave of the process. That was something that my jazz piano uh, teacher told me. And he, what he was talking about, and what we're talking about here is freedom to be you. It's freedom to express who you are and who you want to be. Most people are not free. You can trigger them with anything. You can tell them their hair looks weird today. And all of a sudden, they're like, um, you're in control because, you know, now they're up there. It does it really, you know, like, um, you know, they're, they're running to find a mirror. And so most of the time we are not free and we're so used to not being free that we don't even notice it anymore. So what my um, jazz teacher said was, you know, in order to be free in the art, in order to be able to sit at the piano and be playing along and then have this idea, I want to do this, your hands get out of the way, the technical barriers drop away, and you're able to just play what your heart feels. And that's what we're talking about here. When you're mastering these things, what you're doing is freeing your heart, you know, your heart and your soul to express itself the way that it wants, instead of being a slave to whatever's, whatever's going on out here, which is where most people live. You know, their, their happiness or their sense of inner peace and contentment is so tenuous. All it takes is something on the radio, a text, something on the TV, an advertisement. That's all it takes, and everything comes crumbling down. That's how little control they have over what they're experiencing with their life. So, to accept the fact that, look, this is a process that we practice. And just like the piano, you practice it and the technical barriers, the more you practice, the more the technical barriers drop away. And it gets easier and easier. If you watch somebody who's really good on their instrument, they're not, they don't even look. They're, you know, they're whether they're guitar player, or piano, they're just, it's just the, the music is coming in here or out of here and out their hands. There is no, what do I do now? Or this finger has to go underneath of this thumb at this place. They don't, they're not doing that. The music is just flowing through them. And that's the way you want your life to be. You want your expression of your life to just flow through you instead of you being controlled by everything that's out here. It, life should be lived from inside out, not outside in. I told you I, I had a story about that as well. <clears throat> and that's why I liked that phraseology so much. In order to be free in the art, you must first be a slave to the process. What that triggered for me when I read that was that I was in Toastmasters for 10 years. And in Toastmasters, you are, are taught a very, very specific way of doing a speech and you you follow almost like an outline a b c d e you follow this outline and you do it the way they prescribe you to do it as you're learning and when you're in a, a toastmasters club doing public speaking for a period of years you have people at all levels you have people who are just beginning and you have people who are winning speech awards and contests so you've got everything 
everything in between. But where the freedom comes in is that when you learn the process of addressing your audience in a particular way, constructing your speech in a particular way, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, you know, whatever the, whatever the protocol might be, you, you do it over and over and over again until it does become second nature. And then you find the people who have a lot of experience who are more free in the art, they won't do it in that order. They're, right. they're starting with C, then they go to A, then they go to E, then they jump back to B. You get the entire speech and it's a well-crafted speech. It doesn't follow the same A, B, C, D order because they're now free in the art. They've learned that process. They've learned it backwards and frontwards and they can do it so easily that now they don't have to follow it exactly. And I think it's the same thing that you're talking about with the jazz music. But you first but, have to be in the process. You have, you have to, to be in, the, yeah. And yes. that's why you have to fall in love with the process and stop. The reason you feel so much resistance is because you're attached to the end. And, and when you're there, then what you're constantly reminding yourself of is I'm here and I want to be there. And I, you know, and so you're basically saying I'm at war with this journey to get there. The only reason I'm doing this journey is so I can get there. And the thing is that we learn all through our lives, how many things have we ever wanted? And then we got, and we just, we, we immediately replace it with the next thing that we want. You know, like, um, so we finish one journey and we re immediately look for another. Now, for example, I've worked with, you know, with young people and I've, I ask them a simple question. What do you do with a video game when you master it? And they go, well, I go up to the next level. I said, what if it doesn't have a next level? I get rid of it and I get another video game. I said, that's right. Why is that? I said, because human nature is you want the challenge. You get bored very quickly. If something is too easy, you don't, it, it's, there's no joy in it. I said, like, you want something that, especially like if you look at a video game, I said, it's like you want to be able to kind of do it, but not do it all the time. You want the game to beat you sometimes. But, but I said, that that um, dynamic is what creates the fun. And, and I said, so, and that's also what creates the meaning and the value when you do win the game. If you can pick the game up and just play it, it's like, I used to say, if I sit you next to an Olympic-sized pool that's empty and I give you a tennis ball and I tell you to throw it into the pool, eh, so what? But if I put a small trash can in the middle of the pool and I say, I'll give you 100 bucks if you can put that ball in that trash can, all of a sudden, everything changes. You know, your, your enjoyment of it, your challenge, all these things change, and that's what you like. And so you need to learn to just recognize that and stop fighting with it and recognize this is what I'm right now interpreting as misery is, is what is going to make me feel so great when I accomplish it at the end. So why don't you just switch that off and just accept the fact that it's the process that makes the product um, savoring, worth savoring. Otherwise, it means nothing. You know, it Tom, you've just given me a whole new appreciation for the craft of acting. When people are reciting their lines, which is the least of it because you're expected to know your lines, but what's the interior journey during a conversation if you have a close-up and two people are talking? They both know the outcome, the intended outcome based on the script. And yet when they're delivering the line and then having to react with surprise, they already know the surprise is coming, but they can't give it away. That takes a tremendous degree of self-mastery. 
I'm going to start. I'm going to start watching movies and TV a lot more closely because I'm seeing people in that process. All of them. You have an ensemble. I think of the show that Suzanne and I like to watch every Thursday, Ghosts. You've got a whole ensemble there, and they're collaborating, but they're also each of them on an interior journey, whether it's on this side of the veil or the other, and somehow that all comes together. I find that process fascinating. It is. And again, we, as I said, we spend 98% of our life in the process of doing something, achieving all, you know, whatever goals that we're trying to achieve, whatever, however minor the task is, we're in the process of achieving constantly. And so it just, for me, it makes a lot of sense to reinterpret that, that process. You know, I, I have a thing that interpretation creates your experience. And your experience will then impact your performance. So if your interpretation of, um, of the process is, I hate this, then your experience is going to be, I hate this. And then that is going to be, is going to show up in your performance. But if, you're, if your um, interpretation is, I love this, this is so much fun and I know where it's taking me, then that's your experience. And then there's joy flowing through you and you experience the whole thing. Um, you're, at, you're mentally, you're in a completely different place because we're all, we all enjoy what we're good at. You know? So if you make yourself good at being in the process, then the task is going to flow towards you much easier and you're going to enjoy the whole thing. It's not going to be just this moment because those moments are really short lived. You know, like, um, when you, when you finally get something, whether it's the new car or something, you know, you get the new car and it's great when you sign the thing and you drive it out. But the, what's, what happens right after that? You're worried about leaving it in the parking lot. Someone's going to bang their door into it. I mean, like me or, you know, immediately that joy is gone. Like, um, and my, I, that was the thing that I wrote in the practicing mind, my first book, it was my father used to say some things that were really profound. And when I was saving my money for my first car, I was working five different jobs. I was 16 years old and I was work, 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 work. And, um, and he said, you know, Tom, you're going to find out <clears throat> that the joy of working for something is way more than the moment you get it. He said, like, the, after mm. you get it, that joy pretty much drops away real quick. He goes, it's the anticipation of accomplishing the goal. He goes, and that's where you're living in. And he goes, that's why you're so excited. He said, like, you'll find that once you buy the car and you have it, I'm not saying you won't like it. He said, but you'll find that it really kind of pales to the what you're experiencing right now. And he was right. He was totally right. The joy of the purchase the joy of first driving that new car dissipates faster than the new car smell. <laughs> That's so true. That is so true. Your dad gave you some sage advice. That's wonderful. <laughs> yes, it was a big help because like I said, I, and it certainly wasn't, it was a 68 used Volkswagen. Like it was not, um, it was not a new car. It was just new to me. But um, of course it represented freedom because I had my own car then and I could drive. But my point is, is that, uh, yeah, he, he had a lot of words of wisdom. I learned a lot from him, no doubt. We, uh, we had you talk about the books and where to get them and all of that at the bottom of the hour break. But in the last couple of minutes, I also wanted you to say something about The Practicing Mind because that was your first book. We didn't um, read that one. We read It's Just a Thought. But that seems to be flourishing and, and is part of uh, an ongoing uh, 
things that you are doing. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yes, the practicing mind um, was a concept that I came up with, you know, when I was going into people's houses uh, all the time. And I, I actually wrote that book in the early 1990s. And it was unknowing to me, it was ahead of its time because I was just writing about what I was experiencing. And what I was noticing was that there were a lot of people that were adults and they were unfulfilled and they wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so they were taking up a musical instrument. Uh, and then they, um, the initial enthusiasm would be burned up pretty quickly and they didn't want to practice. And I went back to my own life and thought like, well, why? I remember feeling that way when I was a kid, but then I learned to really look forward to practicing. So what changed in me? And that was when I began to, to write The Practicing Mind. What I, um, and when I wrote it, I couldn't have imagined how it was going to change my life. You know, I couldn't, nobody wanted to publish it because they didn't know me and they didn't know the book. And I thought, well, I'll sell this thing myself. I'll publish it myself, which I did. But I, um, I sold my businesses. I mean, I was, I had a six-figure business, four-state service business. I was doing really, really well. I was at the top of the heat, and I sold, I sold everything at a hundred thousand dollars in tooling. Sold it all. Walked away from it to publish this book. Everybody thought I was having a midlife crisis. Um, and the thing was that uh, I. It, it, what started to happen was I was like $17 a week in sales. And I thought I'm in big trouble. Um, but that did turn around and it became, you know, very successful. And so the book has taken me to a place where um, I do lectures. I do presentations for companies um, or for small groups. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I've done in individual coaching. Uh, sometimes I will work for, say, a corporation. It will be like a whole team in the corporation from the CEO down to uh, smaller people, but I've worked with many people individually. I've worked with kids. I've worked with uh, college athletes, high school athletes. I've been, you know, out in Vegas and talking to uh, college golf coaches. I've been kind of all over the place. It's really given me a lot of different opportunities to meet people. And I think one of the things that has helped me is I've amassed an awful lot of conversations with people and had to solve their problems on the spot, impromptu. And so it's really taught me um, how to communicate the ideas. And of course, I continue. I mean, I spend hours every day researching this stuff uh, because it, I'm just so passionate about it. I think it's so fascinating. And I think we live in a very exciting time because we have we now know that our thoughts are not private. You know, we used to think they were. You know, when you have a thought, light energy leaves your head and it's measurable. And they can um, capture that light energy and they can it can show them where what areas of your brain are being used. And they can also tell what frequency your brain is operating at. So, in other words, it's the future of healing because they've learned how um, sound impacts um, your body and matter. And your thoughts are energy, which is the same as frequency. And that, if in fact, uh, impacts you and the people around you. There's all this stuff that's coming out. And we realize now that we all have a responsibility, what we're thinking into the, the collective. Ah, well, we will talk with you once more, I hope. Certainly. Thomas. No, absolutely. I, I love the show. Thank you. His book, It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. Thank you, Thomas M. Sterner. Coming up next, Mystic Radio with Robin Alexis. You will not want to miss it. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. Let this be the start of your great weekend.